Hello and welcome to the new episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. This is part three of finding investment-grade properties and the due diligence involved in finding these properties. Now, in this part three, we are going to talk about property selection, which is probably the most important thing when it comes to finding investment-grade properties. A lot of people, when they think about finding investment-grade properties, they always focus a lot more on suburb selection. I would say that if you get the wrong property, it would still be as detrimental to your property portfolio as finding the wrong suburb. Now, if you're looking for a quick due diligence checklist, please join our Facebook group called Property Investment Australia or check out the links in the comments below to get access to our due diligence checklist, which is available to everyone who is out there. Now, today, my co-host Cheryl Leong and myself, we would be discussing our experiences in how to select the right property, but also what happens when you do select the wrong property and how bad can it go? Tune in till the end and you would be sharing some really cool key facts about the property selection. Thank you for tuning in. Have a wonderful day. Let me introduce my co-host, Miss Cheryl Leong. Cheryl, how are you today? Awesome, as always, Marcel. We went through and dived very deep into finding suburbs, and we got so excited. We said, let's do another episode on specifically talking about how to identify the properties. Because once we found the suburbs, it's not, you know, it's not happy days yet. We're close. We need to make sure it's the right type of property because not every property was built or born the same way. All right. So what are 100%. the things that we what are the things that we need to be aware of? Got our checklist. Yeah. And so before we start there, you, you would hear people talking about Sebob does the 70% lifting when it comes to growth and 30% is within the property that you select. But if you get the property selection wrong. The suburb is not going to do anything for you, okay? And so I want to share this example for a client and I'm not going to name names, but this client, they came to me and they were quite sort of aggressive clients. So they bought a lot of properties, right? And so this particular one property that I'm going to talk about in the suburb that I was buying it at the same time, this is going back 2016 um, in Ringwood in Melbourne. And so they bought a property there. I bought a property there. Um, my property probably went twofold. And they bought a property at around $650,000 that they sold for $680,000 in 2022. Mm. That suburb, yeah. Ringwood, has done wonders for everyone. Okay, So close to the city, great access. So perfect suburb selection when it comes to ticking all the boxes, right? And so as I said, you know, I was buying in that pocket at the same time because I believed in that demand of that suburb. Where did they go wrong? Well, everything <laughs> went wrong when they thought about buying in that particular property, right? So their property was slopey. Although it was a corner, it was next to the freeway. It was next to the power lines. It has an easement running on the side at the back. And so everything that could be wrong was wrong with that property. And I still remember 2022 when they put that property out for auction. 2021, when they put that property out on auction, it was one of the hottest market that anyone has ever seen and there was two people in the auction. There was one person there and I was the second person because I wanted to support the client because they were selling their property. And the agent was trying to ask me to make a bid and I was like, I'm not here to bid actually. I'm just here <laughs> to watch the auction. And so, yeah. And so how, how can you go this wrong, right? And so it comes down to, you can go into the best suburb and you, you pick, a lemon it would always be a lemon. It cannot do anyone this for you. But I, I think of that and I go, you know, is it possible that they could potentially, because of the location, could that have been a, if this was in Melbourne, a rooming house? Would that have been suitable for that type of, of investment? Yeah, potentially. Look, I mean, so what they did was they actually went in and started thinking about, okay, what can we do with this site, okay? When they first came to me, they already had plans for two four-bedroom houses because it was a corner block that they were thinking about at that time. And so they've spent close to about, I think, sixty to $80,000 on that property already, okay, trying to do plans and permits, et cetera. And so they were so 
sort of gutted by, you know, buying that wrong property that they're like, well, what do we do with this right now? Yeah. And so from a location perspective, it was not close to the train station. It was not close to any hospital. It was close to a massive freeway. It had mm. power lines right behind its back. And so it was not an easy access because the freeway had to be all, although it was next to the freeway, it was not closer to the exit, <laughs> which is funny as well. And so, yeah, rooming house could have been an opportunity. Yes, definitely. But yeah, look, I mean, Melbourne is tricky, right? You know, you talk about rooming houses. Potentially, yes, you're, you, you're right. Yeah. Um, because I look at, at, at houses and, in your word, when you talk about dud houses, and I'm very much an optimist, I'm like, there must be, you know, there, there isn't, there should, there should be an opportunity for, for something to happen with a, with a property. But I said, in terms of what, what can be done with the property and the property prices, which was what we're, we're focusing on, that yeah. might be two different things. Because if you purchased it at the wrong price, then it doesn't matter what you turn it into. Yes. Um, a duck's always going to be a duck. And so, mm. you know, you can yeah. make it a, a, a better looking duck <laughs> and maybe, you know, possibly, but it's going to always, you know, it's, it's going to always be, be quacky. So in terms of the price itself, maybe that's not going to have that, that level of growth, which we were, we're aiming for, which is what we're really wanting in terms of what, we're discussing here property, property yes. selection and so we that's what it comes that's what it comes down to so roaming house would definitely be a good op option and opportunity for them to create that access cash flow mm. uh, but from their strategy perspective buying an expensive roaming house in an area which would not offer them growth because the property is a locked property how much would that give them right you know they have two easements running on the side you know, they might be able to put a small rooming house. And so, yeah, it, was, mm. it, was, it could be a big risk from their perspective as well, where they've overcapitalized and then now they can't find the tenants, right? Uh, because the location yeah. is not perfect. And so from their perspective, they were like, we've made a bad decision. How about we just get rid of this, cut our losses and move on and start building the portfolio mm. in a much more strategic manner. And so again, if I reflect back as to what they said, I said, how did you buy this property? Because you picked the right suburb. And they said to me, oh, their friend was buying in a similar locality and they found this property for us that they said, oh, they are selling it really, really cheap. And so you should buy this. And again, going back 2016, where the prices were just rising 2017 when it peaked. So they picked the property at the peak, right? And so I said, okay, so your friend gave you one right advice, but wrong, one wrong advice, one right advice that they picked the right suburb, but one wrong advice that it wasn't the right property. So if this was property literally 500 meters away from here or one kilometer away from this, within the same suburb, uh, you would be sitting on probably a property that is worth $1.2, $1.3 million. And because it was a big land, it was like seven, 800 square meter yeah. land. So, yeah. yeah. And so it's and interesting. The point you make as well is like, well, don't be afraid to let go of the duds because... If it means that it's not still in line with your strategy and you've got this property that's that's holding you back from being able to move forward, and we've done that before. We've basically, you know, all the negative gear properties that we had, we sold our pretty much our whole portfolio to start again to, to have a better strategy to allow us to move forward. So when you are starting out in your property journey and you get to a point where you're going, oh, my goodness, the, the properties that I have, if – I often do look at it and go, if you don't have to sell property, that's great because there's all the exit costs and look at mm. how you can best ma maximize that property. But if it is really a dud, 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 I, mm. you know, it's not a bad thing to take some losses. If you, you know, if you've got a good uh, property, property accountant to help you structure those losses as well, it might not end up being as bad as you think. So, you know, don't think that, that cutting your losses is a bad thing if it allows you to move forward and 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 purchase property that's going to be better for your strategy. Hundred percent. I think remediation is a very very important strategy when it comes to property investing, and I think people downplay it quite a bit because they're always scared to let go. Right? Yeah, you know, it's human nature. We are always scared to let go. And so you buy this property, you spend, you know, lifetime worth of effort, money savings into buying something like this. 
and then you just can't let go. You, you know, you are too emotionally attached to some of these things. And so you make a very important point that, you know, especially as an investor, you should be thinking strategically whether this property is adding value to your overall long-term goal. And if it's not, let it go, right? You know, it's one of those yeah. painful boyfriends that you have to cut ties with, right? Uh, if it's not working, it's not working, so right? Well, there's so many boyfriends, you know. <laughs> I'm not um, sure the boyfriend the analogy, but you know, <laughs> yeah, I get, I get your drift, Amos. So let's let's create a bit of a checklist. Let's create a bit of a checklist for our audience to be able to go through and go. All right, yes. I'm going to look at all of these things. Tick, 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 tick. Let's start off with. What are the things to look at when you're looking at the property? So you've got um, this property there. Zones. You know, you might have gone to RP data. Zonings. All righty, let's zoning. Zoning. What do you mean by zoning? Cross-country um, zone, so school zone. <laughs> Every suburb in across all of Australia um, has a zone attached to it. A zone basically indicates or defines what can be done with the property, right? And so it's important to understand what is the zone of your property. A lot of people don't even know or care as to what their property zone is, whereas it plays a big part in what can be done with the property, right? Um, whether it's a development site, you know, could you build a high rise here? And so how the high best use is predominantly defined by what the zone of the property would be, right? And so I would start there. I would basically say, well, let's look at the zone understand what the zone entails, look at the minimum lot sizes that are available there. I'm a big believer that you should always buy properties with multiple exit strategies. And so understanding the zone basically gives you or empowers you in making those decisions um, around um, what can be done with the property in the future. Can you put a granny flat at the back? Can you subdivide this into two, for example? And so those zones uh, would be quite crucial in making those decisions. What else do you yeah, think would be yeah. important, Cheryl? Well, the the overlays in terms of what are, say, things like if you've got noise, so if you live near an airport, for example, like are there uh, bushfire? So you might even think, like, be aware. And council usually has this information. You know, council websites, the good council websites, will often have some sort of a planning portal or mapping portal and put in your details and you should be able to see all these things like the zoning and the overlays. So bushfire, for example, flood zone, these are going to indicate things where you need to maybe consider how it's going to impact your insurance. And, Definitely. Uh, and if you're going to be building something in a bushfire zone, for example, that's also going to increase your, your build costs because you've got different levels of quality of, of um, building materials that you've got to use. So. Um, heritage as well. So there'll be areas, in, I know in, in Brisbane, there's certain heritage areas. You, you can't touch the type of property, you know, even in terms of renovation or development. So be aware that, uh, that these overlays are there. They're not necessarily all restrictive. It's just knowing that you've got an airport overlay that you might have visited it when there were no planes going over, but then. <laughs> When the planes go over, it feels like a road train's going to crash into your into your house. So you don't want that either. Yes. yes. Um, so overlays are, are a good one to note and just be aware of. Insurance is a real big one at the moment, Moss. I'm not sure if you've seen that, particularly with a yes, lot of properties in New South Wales and Brisbane, uh, sorry, in Queensland, where it might look on a sunny day and everything else, it might look absolutely fine really important that you ring up the insurance companies and ask them how they're treating those properties in those areas as well because they might those premiums might have been and even if it doesn't flood even if that property doesn't flood because it's in a particular suburb that might have issues with insurance as well definitely definitely i think overlays is one of the the key things that a lot of people get caught by I know, you know, there are trees, there are tree overlays, there are vegetation overlays yes. uh, where yes. a single tree can basically, although it looks nice and it's a beautiful tree, when you decide to sell it, that you realize that this tree is actually bringing the value of the house down because it's converting or the site cannot be developed. And so the developer would come in and tell you some of these information where a tree is impacting a site. And 
And so there, there are clearly some of these things where people don't think about this and they buy it and then they realize that, oh, I should have known about this before. Heritage overlay that you yeah. mentioned about before is a tricky one, right? Because, you know, they can cut areas in various different ways. And so a house next door might not be heritage listed and your house might be heritage mm. listed and same with bushfire zone, mm. right? And so you might think, oh, because every house is on the same street, uh, because their house fetched X amount of dollars, your house would be the same worth. And the next thing you know, when you put it on to the market to sell, you realize that you have these overlays that are restricting you from attracting the right buyers because of these overlays. You know, I have a really good friend of mine and she has a property in a suburb of Melbourne called Surrey Hills. And so a lot of Surrey Hills has cultural heritage, but there's a portion of Surrey Hills which does not have cultural heritage. And so it's always developer's favorite. And so you look at the price difference between the two areas, it's significantly massive, right? And so her property is like right at the edge. And she's like, I wish I knew that, you know, these heritage properties are such a pain. Um, I would have never bought it. Yeah. But then again, I was meeting another friend and she wants to live in these areas where there is cultural heritage uh, or heritage listed properties because it provides that sense of openness and comfortableness and knowing that no one is going yeah. to come here and build apartments or high rises and townhouses next to you. And so you would have a big leafy green suburb all the time. And so knowing and be mind, being mindful of that is very, very important so that you know that you're making a conscious decision. It's not so much about being good or bad. You know, you make the right point. Yeah. And, and I've got a bit of a story to tell with in terms of overlays. We were looking to purchase a property. This was in Sydney and it's in Karingai Council. And anyone that's dealt with Karingai Council knows Ooh, that they're very much you know, they're green, they love the trees yes, and everything else, which is fantastic. Um, we, there was a property that we were, were looking to acquire. It was a huge, it was a huge corner block. It was probably about a thousand square meters, but there was this enormous tree right on sort of not in the middle, but it was sort of close to the middle. It was going to be, it was going to be an issue. And the council said, no, we can't, we can't remove it. Um, it would have been fantastic for two, two blocks. And so we ended up not going ahead with it because that was, we we're, we we're trying to, you know, figure out a few different scenarios of what we could do on that block. A few years later, we drove past and there was a childcare center on the block oh. and no tree. Very interesting. And we went, oh, what happened there? Right? Because, you know, council specifically <laughs> said no trees. However, so instead of, um, but, but we didn't realize at the time and what I found out from another developer friend was that because the property was less than a hundred meters from a national park, that actually removing the tree was permissible oh. because you were next to a national park. So I had no idea about that. And I'm thinking that wow. that was probably what they, what they um, had relied on to remove that tree because it was a grand old tree. I mean, even though mm. we were thinking about building around it and all of that. And so the, what, what I'm trying to say here is that be aware of these overlays and, and potentially these restrictions, particularly with vegetation and all of that. Like speak to a planner who understands if you are looking to add value to a property. I mean, if you're buying an existing property, probably not so much a problem, but if you're looking to add value in terms of building something else whether it's a granny flat or knocking down developing like definitely speak to a planet and work out if there are ways around to achieve the outcome because i said you know if it was that one little thing that we didn't know we would have we would have been able to develop something there obviously i don't like knocking down trees but what i'm you know the 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 lesson from that was to be able to go don't necessarily just look at something and go that that's it can't do anything going back to that whole surround yourself by by a team that understands and make sure you've covered all your bases before you make that decision. 100%, 100%. And I think that's, yeah, that's a beautiful story. Um, you think about some of these things and there is so much that you don't know, right? And there is so much yeah. stuff that is out there with overlays that it's always advised to be over-conscious and over-prepared and under-prepared. So ask a lot of questions about a lot of these things, you know, what we're talking about in today's podcast is, you know, some of these overlays that we know of or some of these overlays that are come in day in, day out. There is heaps of overlays that councils have that have weird names to it. You know, there is a koala biodiversity overlay, you know, that I heard about. 
um, last year where apparently, you know, if, if it's there, you can't do any developments because it's a koala protective. There's fire ants overlays. There's heaps of overlays that you would hear about. Did and you see fire ants? Fire yeah, ant fire. overlay? Fire ants overlay, yes, yeah. Well, yeah. Nobody wants to keep fire ants on their <laughs> land. I'm like, that's the worst thing you want in overlay. I know, right? I don't mind the and so there are protected species in particular councils where they're trying to protect probably fire ants so yeah it's it's amazing as to is that in in queensland because a lot of fire ants in queensland probably (laughs) (laughs) especially where i'm moving to i'm sure yeah. So be aware of these. Um, and, and there's the difference. Let's move on to the next one, which is there's a difference between overlays and easements. Yes. All right. So easements, let's talk about easements and what, what, are, what are the things that we need to look Easements are not necessarily a bad thing. They're depending on where they are on your land and what sort of easements. Definitely. Definitely. And so you, you try to explore what an, a really an easement is. Easement is basically a right to someone you know, for something, a right to counsel to X or right to neighbor to do Y to your property. Okay. So you're providing a right or you have a right uh, when it comes to easement. And so majority of the times easements are harmless, but they can be super, super harmful as well. Easements like, you know, you know, at the back of the property where it's, it's part of your backyard, usually harmless, you know, not going to do anything. Those easements are usually services or something going through it. And so council needs access to those easements in case if there is a leakage or something happens and council needs to provide some sort of access um, or, or to get that access. And so they would never allow you to build on these easements or they would not allow you to build any build form over easements. They'll allow you to build carports or um, they would allow you to do the concrete and you know put a landscape around it. So all of that is fine. And so when do easements get technical or tricky um cheryl give us a bit of an understanding around that so when you've got easements like where they are positioned in your property is is you know you don't want it running into the middle of your property where you're going to have to build something that's definitely not a good a good sign if you've got sewer you know you've got sewer lines running and and you can't build over it that's going to be restrictive for that i mean obviously right of ways where it's on the side in the back like moss says that's okay. Um, but, you know, what other easements do you think are an issue? That Those are some of the main ones. Like I said, if they're running through the middle of your property mm. um, and you've got uh, in terms of services where you can't build over but and you can't really, you know, in saying that some easements can be, can be removed but then it takes a really long time to have to deal with neighbours and council to do that. And so it's a really expensive process. So yeah. Is, yeah. how do you, Moss, what are the things that you do to figure out where the easements are? Where, what's the easiest way to find out where your because easements are? There is council websites that would provide you a lot of these details. There is council plans. Usually there, every council has their a planning website, you know, Vic plans or SA portals or Queensland portal. BCC has its own portal as well. So every council, every state would have its planning portal where you can go and check out these easements. There are softwares available out there where you can check these easements as well. Um, These easements have to be called out on the contract of sale. So every time you would see a contract of sale, these easements have to be there. Sometimes they are not called out on the title. They are only called out in, say, uh, a vendor statement or appendices or or, or a form one, be it, you know, Adelaide. And so it's, it, it gets really tricky. You need to make sure that, you know, you understand what an easement is there for or what are these restrictions are there for. One of the most trickiest yeah. ones that I've seen when it comes to easements um, also is um, septic tanks. You know, I've seen these mm. non-existence of easement a problem where there is no sewer in the area and they have all these septic tanks built in. And so you're like, okay, so I need to figure out there is no easement. And so that's bad as well or there is no yes. services in the area. And so that's one of the ways that you can identify as to, oh, you don't need septic tanks in the backyard. You know, of course, they don't smell or anything, but it's just, it's just, it's not a nice feeling to have a septic tank in the backyard uh, for waste collection. No, and, 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 and traditionally these are in sort of older areas, which there might've been farmland or whichever that might be, right? In terms of septic tanks or um, mm. det- not, not detention, 
yeah, there'll be older it's, sort of they used to be farmland. It's it's funny, like Adelaide is um, a bit interesting. There are some of these newer areas very close to city where they still have no sewer. And so it's probably a lazy developer who has done this <laughs> and, and installed, you know. And so, you know, like there would be four streets where there is no sewer and everywhere there is sewer. And so councils have planned to bring in sewer probably in the next 10 years, but they don't have any plans to do it right now. And so probably something to do with the developer. They didn't want these four streets to have, you know, uh, sewer lines, for example. Yeah. And so it's, it's yeah. quite interesting, you know, having to know that information and making that call. I remember, you know, looking at that property, we were always going to go unconditional on that property. We got the form one, we start looking through and was like, wait a minute, what is this? And so we explored this and we're like, oh, okay. So there's no sewer in the area. So there's septic tanks. Yeah. Nah, you're not going to buy that property. So yeah, it's, it, uh, it's in, interesting to explore some of these things and, you know, read the contracts go through the council website, um, understand yeah. what they are calling it out on um, and, and ask questions to the conveyances. They know what these easements are. Mm. All right. So be aware of your easements. Covenants, Moss, what are they? Covenants are an interesting one. So covenants are these restrictions that a developer would set up on a particular land because they want the, the street to look something similar or they want to control how a state looks like or they don't want people to subdivide the land while they're doing what they're trying to do. And so covenants are these restrictions that a particular developer would put on the whole state while they're developing the state. And so it's not, it's majority of the time, it's nothing to do with the council. And so they are the most challenging ones you would hear about them quite late in the piece. They are hidden in the contracts. They're hidden on Section 32s or contract of sale. And so you have to be really, really wary of them because they have these funny words. It's hard to decipher as to what they're trying to talk about. You know, they would try to put covenants on, for example, the size of the fence or having a fence at the front or... Um, having a particular facade at the front or particular mm. colors that they want for your roof or making it much more difficult where they would have single dwelling covenants where you have 2,000 square meter of land, but you know it's a single dwelling covenant, which means that you can only build a single house or a single dwelling on it. And so it becomes yeah. really, really tricky. Have you come across any of those, Shell? Absolutely. We've got covenants where generally it's in the community, like you said, a community development where the developer wants a particular look and feel. And not necessarily that they're bad. Like you just need to know that there's a, set, a certain facade. You need to, you know, they might might say no tiled roofs, only corrugated iron roofs or whatever, color bond roofs, whatever. So as long as you're okay with those sorts of things, then they're not necessarily bad. I think from a community perspective is to make sure that you don't have a pink house in the middle yes. of all these like Hamptons type houses. So yes. just be aware that they're there is mainly what what it is that you need to be aware of. And again, like I said, if you're looking to develop, it's you know, they might have restrictions on, on land sizes and things like that. So it's yes. not necessarily a bad thing, but it depending on what you're trying to achieve with that property, it's just mindful to be um you know, we've got a covenant over our particular property, and it's in in any other property you might you you could subdivide it, but we can't. We can build a dual occupancy, but we can't subdivide, for example. So, being aware of those sorts of restrictions is it's just just part of the the due diligence and definitely. it's part of the, the decision making process. Definitely, definitely. And w- and what do you think of these power lines? I know there is a Almost a split people decision yeah. when it comes to power lines. You know, some people have no I'm issues with power keen. lines. I'm not keen as a as an investor developer. I like look at power lines and I'm like stay stay away. Are they um, looking right? They're ugly looking, and 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 I mean, they can be screened in some way. But then there are different people who don't like power lines for various things because they're like you know what sort of transmissions are they getting you know i remember yes. putting up a post in one of my, um our facebook groups about this huge uh it wasn't a power line it was a big telecommunications it was yes. a big telecommunications tower and the view was stunning 
but there was this enormous telecommunications tower in the back. So, you know, people are generally adverse to any sort of thing that, you know, emits, emits something to begin with. So power lines or telecommunications towers, and they may be, you know, quite harmless. Some others think, you know, you've got EMFs, which are like electromagnetic field Mm. as well. So there's going to be always a reason. So there's, you know, if you're looking to sell a property, which if you're talking about, you know, 100% of people might like it, then it sort of reduces it to maybe only 7 out of 10 people might like it. So reduce the the desirability of a particular property. So I'm personally not a big fan. I don't know about you. And look, I mean, even from banks' perspective and the valuations perspective, even from insurance perspective, where there is power plants, I know banks are quite sort of cautious, you know, um, providing loans towards houses with power plants. Um, back in the old days when I was, you know, purchasing my first home, um, I was looking at this particular property and there was no power plant built at that time. And sort of when the valuer came out, he said, oh, by the way, do you know that there is a power plant being built next to you? Uh, for the further stages of the house. And I was like, what? What is that supposed to mean? And he's like, oh, I'm going to show it in the report. And so probably bank might not lend you the same amount of money, which is, was quite interesting. And that was the first time I heard about some of these things that, you know, banks get quite nervous about some of these things as well. See, from a medical reasons perspective, I'm, an, um, I'm a very non-emotional investor. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but I would clearly not live in an area where there is power lines. And so, I'm always one of those people that if I'm not going to live in a particular area, I know that um, an owner occupier like myself would not want to live in that particular pocket as well, right? So mm-hmm. you just need to be wary about that sort of emotions and bringing that into onto the table, thinking about some of these things as to what ultimately who is going to buy this property from you, be it 10 years down the track. Would they look at this and say, oh, that looks terrible? Oh, yeah. this is just horrible, right? And yeah. so if that's the feedback that you get from your inner self, you need to step away from these properties. Yeah, yeah. So for, personally, I'm not, I'm not a big fan. The next one is the shape of a property. And this is, I find this really interesting because, and yes. I share a personal story. Our, our property is actually probably the shape of a triangle. And oh, nice. I, I got, I got a, cause it's, it's a cold, it's a cul-de-sac. So cul-de-sac. it's fantastic because we only have one, we only have one neighbor. So from a livability perspective, it doesn't really, really bother us so much. However, and I'm going to bring in that I had a, a feng shui expert come in and look at the property. <laughs> that one of the first things she said was, you've got a triangular shape land, not good. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. But she's like, it's okay. We can do things to sort of offset it, you know, and that's why you a strong trade person because the design of the house, the design of the house um, could, could still sort of offset it. So, yes, shape comes into, into it because depending on the shape of the land, like, you know, if you've got a triangular-shaped block, it is more difficult to, if you want to develop it or add another dwelling, it's going to be harder to, add something onto it people always prefer a more uh, regular shape rectangular shape property and so there is a thing there is a lot of stereotypes in various different religions i have a client uh, who always wants a north facing house and so he's like you have to buy a house that faces north and i was like well australia houses are supposed the north is supposed to be backyard not the front (laughs) yard right so that's how they develop states. And so it becomes so difficult to find a not facing house for this particular person because that, that's what they want every time, regardless of in, investment property or personal property. And so it's interesting to consider the dynamics of the area, right? And so if you're buying in you know, those particular communities where you know that people care about some of these things, then yeah, 100%, you know, look at the occasional sort of uh, atrocities of, or occasional sort of delicacies of some of these things. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So even things like if there's a, a a waterway that's running underneath the property, some people go, oh, it's wonderful, I'm near a creek. Whereas there are some religions, again, like you know, with feng shui, you don't have a you don't have water running on the property. It's bad. Feng oh wow. Shui. Yes, yeah. so it's it's quite interesting. Look, I think shape 
means a lot when it comes to, of course, the high best use or the value that you're going to get out of the land. You know, everyone wants a perfectly rectangle shaped properties. I think from an investment property perspective, understand that the more weird the shape is, the more custom design the house mm. would be, you know, if you decide to say develop in the future, et cetera, all of that. But, you know, from an overall perspective, it's a rectangle or a square, you are in a safe zone. But if it is a crazy house, then from an investment grade perspective, you just need to ensure that, you know, there is a market for it, right? And so, like, you know, yeah. you mentioned your own example, perfect example, right? From an owner-occupier perspective, people wouldn't be as judgmental about some of these properties. Sure. Whereas mm. if, it was a, if it was a triangle block, then from a, from a full-scale development perspective, you would be like, ah, oh, should I still acquire it? You know, would I be efficiently using the land, for example? Yeah, absolutely. And I do find these odd-shaped blocks as well does give you opportunity where a lot of people might shy away. Again, I can't really yes. come to making sure that you've got your team around you because you might have a planner and, and an architect that says, hey, have you thought of this? We can do this. And then you Definitely. get a really great outcome from it. So don't necessarily stick Definitely. to the, the stock standard side of things. You know, odd shapes might actually be an opportunity where people, other people can't see. Again, it's just being, being aware of what it is that you're trying to achieve. And so when you talk about shape, I think the size and the length and the frontage of the property matters yeah. a lot as well, isn't it? Because you would always look at all of these things combined at the same time. You would not look at them individually, right? Size matters. Most size matters, you know? <laughs> I don't know what anyone says. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about land land here moss is it keep it yes keep. yes look i made it uh, i made a comment somewhere else before and i say i said that you know the the size of the diamond does not reflect the success of the marriage and so the size of the land does not define the success of whether this is going to be an investment grade property because the zone matters at the same time um, the frontage matters at the same time. Uh, the shape matters at the same time. So you have to combine all of these things uh, when you're talking about investment-grade property. I'll give you a very quick example. Uh, we were doing this um, particular development in one of the suburbs of Sunshine about you know six years ago. And so we bought a really small block, I think about 580 square. And we managed to put like three townhouses there because it was a residential growth zone. So it, was, it would allow you to go you know, high developments or high density developments. Uh, whereas um, a similar size block in, in a normal residential, a general residential, you would be lucky to even put two, right? And yeah. so, of course, you know, when you're looking at the size of the land, big does not always means better. You just need to find the efficient land size together with the shape, right? And so a lot of people naturally think that, oh, because my land is... 690 square it's better than 600 for example right mm -hmm. and so that 90 square is somehow giving me a better edge right and i always say to people well it comes down to land asset value right the conversation that we were having in the previous episode it's not so much about getting that extra land how much extra did you pay for this extra land mm -hmm. and what benefit is it creating for yourself yes. you know can you put a granny at the back in 600 versus 690 right Mm. Mm. And if you can't, then are you paying too much for a property that's not going to give you any extra? 100%. 100%. And so, you know, and the, when you look at all of these things combined, especially um, from the frontage perspective, Adelaide is one of the key suburbs where an 18 meter frontage versus a 21 meter frontage attracts different prices depending on the size of the land. Because an 18 meter is a minimum requirement for you to do a duplex. But if you go 21, that nine meter requirements changes to a seven meter requirements. And so on 21 meter frontage, you could do three with a similar land size, right? And so, and so people don't know that, you know, people naturally think that, oh, it's a 750 square meter land and this is a 750 square meter land. And so, you know, uh, it should be valued the same. No, it's actually 21 meter frontage should be valued more because yeah. you could do a lot more with that land. Yeah, so anyone that's looking in Adelaide, there you go. Fil your filter in any of your search, search software, over 20-meter frontage. Definitely, over 21-meter frontage, definitely. Yeah. And, and so, again, you know, um, if you take it further down, you're talking more about the position of the property. 
what do you think of the position of the property where is it positioned how much yeah. does it matter yeah position of that's an interesting one and we're are we referring to sort of like you know this is your boundary and the offsets and setbacks and where it is on the block yeah both like as in where how much is the offset and the setback uh, and mm. that's important too understanding the building envelope uh, mm. but also the position across the street you know where is it located ah, is it okay. yeah, yeah 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 so like you know is it is it facing a roundabout for example yeah yeah or a t t intersection t intersection yeah a t intersection you know what i actually get freaked out about houses near t intersections because oh, i'll yes. walk does it does it happen to you because i'll look at it and go oh my goodness that's a that's a that's a car in the window scenario oh yes at yes, roundabouts yes. or like weird corners or T intersections, I'm always like I am envisaging a car in yes. the, car in the living yes. room. Yes, it has happened to me. Um, a car went through one of my properties. Really? Um, where it wasn't actually a T intersection; it was just slightly on the on the left hand side from a T intersection. But again, um, I think. Clearly, you know, you need to leave probably four houses down because you don't know which direction the car is coming <laughs> the through, team, right? Or the team is actually the car going around and then they lose control, yeah. you know. Yeah, and so this person, uh, he's actually our neighbor and uh, one of my investment properties and, the, and her, his wife basically ran through uh, our master on suite. <laughs> Go oh figure. <laughs> uh, luckily, uh, there was no one in the house, no one living there. It was an empty place, and so no one was hurt. Because the renters didn't want to live near a T intersection. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think uh, I just acquired the property. And again, this is going back 2013, 2014. And um, so, yeah, there was a house there. I bought it. It was sitting there. We were waiting for the cleaners to come to clean the house and then put the tenants in. And I got a call. I was in Sydney at that time. And they're like, oh. Someone has run through the master on of your house. Extra, like, extra skylight. Yeah. And cool. extra ventilation. Yes. Yeah, so I would say T intersections, roundabouts, like a major road. I'm not keen on major roads. Um, 100%. And because it's just way. I, I, my husband and I have this rule around is there sufficient street parking as well yes. for people, um, whether it's guests. Or whatever, or people have you know two, three cars. Is there enough street parking um, mm. as well? Knowing where the light poles or trees are. I mean, how much of that is a factor for when when you're looking? Like you know, electricity poles, trees, that sort of thing. I mean, when we are looking for sites with multiple exit strategies, of course, you know that's very, very important. You know, a tree um, having two nature front nature trees which is in the council property not even in your property is a no-go because you can't do anything it's council's property you can't touch it right and so if you especially when you're looking for a three unit side you don't have a clear access path where the tpz's for the tree or tree protection protection zones are massive it's a no-go right and so people don't think about how is the nature strip impacting your site but you know we are doing that level of due diligence when you're acquiring especially investment grade properties with future subdivision potential, for example. And so if you're buying normal investment grade properties, you might not have to go to that nth level of detail, but I would still counsel that, you know, the front trees on a bigger land where you are planning to do something with the land, you know, just make sure that the tree is not positioned, you know, weirdly, there is no major poles. Of course, those poles can be moved, but it's an extra cost, 10 to $15,000 to move those poles especially right. if you're trying to do something with that property, right? You know, especially like properties with back access. Um, I've seen people don't look at trees where you're trying to do something at the back, be it granny, be it, you mm. know, battle X or building something at the back. The trees and the poles become a biggest problem because you have only one location where the driveway can go through. And yes. so you can't move the driveway around. And so, you know, trees and light poles become a very, very important sort of consideration when you're buying these battle X properties. Yeah, and, and I'd say even, you know, going back to the whole roundabout, if you are looking to, to add value or, ex, or develop a particular site, note that a lot of councils don't like, um, don't like it to create new driveways, access points, if it's on a, so if it's on a, yeah, 
a crossover when it's a roundabout because they're like there's too much traffic around. Definitely. There. So it'd be absolutely definitely yeah. that as well. Definitely. And so yeah, position of the property, especially on a major road. Um, um, I'll give you one example. A, a similar property on a back street might be a three unit site, but on a major road because the council does not allow you multiple crossovers. Yeah. might still be only a two-unit site because the council would say, well, the turning point you need to be, it has to be a two-wide turning point because you, you would block the traffic if you have three cars going in and out of a major intersection all the time, right? Yeah. And so it's always important to consider some of these things, having a conversation with the council and thinking it through, right? And so having that checklist in place, doing that checks is quite important. Yeah. We've talked about frontage. What about the size of the backyard? How important do you think is it, you know, a size of a backyard is when it comes to investment grade properties or due diligences? Well, you look at the size of the back. Everyone wants a big backyard, you know. What's that baby's got back? What's that song? Baby's got back. Anyway, I'm thinking of all these songs. Um, <laughs> size of the backyards can indicate quite a few things, right? You know, can you can you build a granny flat? Can you do a battle axe block where you've got access to the back? You know, you're, if you're catering to a particular market where they want the backyard, which is usable for children, then you probably want to, you know, do you look at going, am I preserving the backyard if I can't build a granny flat or whichever, which I'm not sure what the requirements are in Victoria, but in, in New South Wales, if you've got a 450 square metre block, generally you can build a granny flat in your backyard so having space in the backyard like you said comes down to that whole land to sorry land to asset ratio is yes. having a big backyard is always a good thing definitely definitely and so i think it comes what you are saying or what i'm hearing is that when you're talking about backyard it's more about understanding what can be done with the backyard and mm -hmm. if you can figure out what this property is achieving that outcome how is that property achieving that outcome then you can provide a better value or land to asset value to the property. Yeah. yeah. But going and back so to what we mentioned as well, like it, don't pay too much for a larger block just for the sake of it either if you correct. can't add any extra value to it. Correct. Correct. And it's, so it's funny. I, I was speaking to, I have so many clients. I keep thinking about these stories. I was speaking to this client and he bought a site which was only like about 15 to 20 square meters shy of what he could do with the site. And so he needed a 600 square meter lot to do two side by side. And his site was 565 or 575, 85, I think. So 15 meters shy. And I, so, so I, I said to him, so why didn't you think about this when you were buying the property, you know, as to how big the backyard is, how big the size is. And he's like, oh, I was told that you would still be able to fix it. And but told by who? Well, told by a friend, of course, or told by a, a town planner or told by a council. And of course, you know, there was a lack in due diligence. And so one of the things that he did, which is quite smart, and, you know, again, you know, comes back to your point that, you know, you need to think about externalities or you think creative about some of these things is he went to his neighbor and said, hey, can you sell me, you know, 15 square of your land so that my land can be subdivided? Um, in the future and the neighbor allowed him to do that and it was an easement in the neighbor's property anyway so you know the neighbor said yeah take the easement who cares mm -hmm. and so it was perfect i think that was a yeah. good sort of outcome um, yeah, and so i think backyards play a very very important role knowing that they are going to add or play to the outcome that you're trying to achieve that's the that's the key thing you know like you know if you're looking at a battle x project for example um having a three meter clearance for example in victoria or a four-meter clearance in Adelaide is quite important. If you don't have that clearance, then that backyard means nothing. You know, if you're looking yeah. predominantly for a battle X project or a splitter project, right? So, yeah. yeah. No. And be, be mindful um, with battle X projects because if you're looking to subdivide a block, even though it might be, it might say, you know, 300 square meters minimum block size, um, you've got to take into account if it's a handle that you've got on a battle X, you're going to need more than 600 square yes. meters. It's not going to be a a straight yes. 300, 300, you need this, um, the amount of land for the, the handle as well. Yeah, no, no, 100%. And so I think that's quite important when you're thinking about some of these things as to whether it's allowed for in the minimum lot sizes when you're looking at the, um, the lot sizes for 
doing the, the battle like so it's a very very important point to consider yeah slopes and contours i really like this not that i like slopes and contours but i think it's it's <laughs> one of the things that you uh i didn't really understand so much around particularly with with services and things like that how you know a block that slopes back how does that impact a property or a development more so a development what do you look out for yeah Look, I think uh, I've not come across one person who likes slopes, right? <laughs> right, and so uh, naturally there is a there is a bit of negative connotation when it comes to slopes. Um, I always say to people that when you're talking about slopes, uh, slopes on a smaller land is a lot more painful than a slope on a really big land. Um, so it's you can manage it a lot easier, effectively, efficiently through a build when you're talking about a slope on a really big land versus a slope on, you know, 600 square meter block, for example, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's quite relative in nature as well. It does increases a lot of difficulties in how you're going to manage the site, especially when you're doing developments. And so you need to be really creative around you know, how are you going to work with the increased side costs? Where's the legal point of discharge? And so you mm -hmm. need to, and so mm -hmm. the rule of thumb naturally becomes stay away from slopes, right? And so mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. we teach a lot of our investors, you know, let's not, you know, go for flat lands, you know, try to keep the slope as minimum as possible because that's the safe way out, right? But when you talk about developments and you're talking about 4,000 square meter land that we have on one of our development sites, you have a nine meter slope there. Hey, we can work with that. Uh, we can play with that. We can build with that slope because it's a gradual decrease. It's not a, um, it's not a free fall. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And just be aware that with building as well, a slope can add extra, will add extra cost to your build if you have to have split levels or more levels, retaining retaining walls and all. But if retaining it's part walls. of, you know, if it's part of the cost and the, and the expenses and it still works out, then it's not a bad thing. So, you know, it just, it's all just part of the, the due diligence of being aware of what is possible or not. Definitely, definitely. And so if you talk about slopes and, you know, there are areas which are slopey, right? And so there are areas and suburbs which are, you know, you talk about Korangai Council, super slopey, right? So how much does precedences play a big part into the suburbs dynamics as to, okay, what can be done? What should be done? Should you buy here? Should you not buy here? Are you influenced by, you know, what's happening in the locality? Yeah, I, I, I do tend to look at, you know, if we're developing, you know, if it's townhouses or subdivisions or whatever, I'm always going to look at what other people have done. You know, you can be you can be the trailblazer and be the first one that does it, but then you're you're going to be risking the fact that you're not sure what the outcomes will be. And again, you know, if that's your risk appetite, that's absolutely fine. But having seen what other people have done, you know, often you'll see, particularly on say, you know, if you're doing your due diligence on and looking at Google Maps, and you're like, oh, these people have mm. built. This land's pretty much exactly the same. A few doors down, they've built this, this, and this, or they've popped a granny flat, or they've done a battle axe, or whatever that might be. That's going to give you some level of comfort. But again, doesn't mean that mm. that's, that's a given. Have a look at those properties and see when they were approved. Do some due diligence as to yes. are they renting it out? Has it, you know, if it has been approved, has it been built? Are they renting it out? All those sorts of things. But Precedences gives you yeah. some level of indication that it can be done, but it doesn't necessarily mm. mean that it's, mm. an it's an absolute. So it just does help. I think, yeah, there is no guarantees when you talk about precedences. I think it's a, it's a step in the right direction. When you look at precedences, you know that this can be achieved. Of course, you know, you don't just drop the due diligence and just believe yeah. the precedence, of course. You yeah. just need to be extra careful as to when were they approved, when were the precedences set up, and, and how, uh, how approving the council is. I was speaking to one council a few months back, and there was a precedence right next door three years ago, and the council said that, oh, at that time the council was very progressive, and now we are not that progressive, and so we will not take the precedence into account. And, 
yeah, every decision on its own. So, yeah, it's it's important to still you know ask the question. Unless you don't ask the question, you don't get the right answer, right? So, hundred percent. We've talked about trees. We've talked about services. What do you think about some of these air uh, things around floor plans, house character, house age, house size? Uh, yeah. How much yeah. value or importance do you put to some of these? Some onto some of these? Yeah, things? absolutely. And this is that now we're looking at the the, the the property itself and the intricacies about the the property. So you know, floor plan. I, I love studying floor plans because I'm all about the usability of a floor plan. So if you're someone mm. who is uh, a renovator, for example, you might look at a floor plan and it might be for a three-bedroom house, but then you realize that there's this enormous rumpus room that really can be a fourth bedroom and, mm. you know, put a wall up, put an ensuite in there and all of a sudden you've got a four-bedroom house, which then what does it do to the value of your property? It goes up. It goes up um, 100%. And and actually, I, I not long ago I found out about this, and this might have been me, in terms of you know RP data and letting them know that the number you've increased the number of houses or bathrooms in your property. So if you go to RP data and you yes. get your your CMA, and it will say three bedroom, two bathroom, and it'll do a comparison because all the what do you call it, the analytics behind it looks at all the three bedroom yeah. houses. But in fact, now that you've moved it up a level to a four-bedroom house, it's doing its analytics um, and comparing you to four-bedroom houses. So it actually increases the value of your property as well. So floor plans, I love looking at to sort of understand, is it usable space? Can it be improved? Are the rooms the size that people want to live in? And yes. If we're developing, you know, what are the things that, that people are wanting in the current? Yeah. Um, what are the trends? What are people wanting? They, oh, everyone's wanting a spare office, for example, or butler's pantries are very much the in thing. And, you know, garages, things like that. So I love, I love studying floor plans. How about you? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. I think when you talk about houses, floor plans plays a major part in making sure that the house is workable and um, you can add value to the house itself. You know, we gave a great example converting a three bedroom, one bathroom to a four bedroom, two bathroom is the, is a renovator's delight. It's the easiest strategy in the strategy book or the investment playbook uh, where you can add quick bucks to your property portfolio, quick equity to your property portfolio. And so, you know, I counsel people when you're looking at floor plans, even when you're buying personal properties, personal, you know, private living properties, right? Principal places of residences, focus more on the floor plan because anything cosmetic inside, that can be changed. You can have new fl- floors, you can have a brand new kitchen, you can put in a brand new toilet, et cetera, all of that. But if your floor plan is bad, you cannot do anything with it. And that's going to cost you a lot more if you're thinking about extensions or if you're thinking about, you know, changing a window to a door, for example, any structural changes to the house costs you a lot more. And so a highly efficient floor plan is what you should always be looking for in a particular house. Yeah. I actually get um, a bit What angsty. about the house age? I was going to say, I get a bit angsty oh, when I on like realestate.com or domain and, and there's no floor plan attached and I sort of twitch a little oh, bit. Yes. Yes. You're trying to figure out the, yes. the flow yes. of a property. So as much as possible, any of the real estate agents out there, whether it's a rental property or it's a property for sale, just put the darn floor plan out. It just makes things so much easier. Uh, yeah, 100%. 100%. I think a lot of Perth, since we have started investing in Perth last year, uh, January, we've realized that they never share floor plans. And so we have to go all the way to the council to achieve and grab floor plans to see as to what yeah. they look like. Or what I would be doing is I would be asking the agent to um, do a video for me or the local agent that we work with to do a video for me in such a way that you're going in a proper flow so that I can get a yes. better feel as to how the house is designed. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very important decision-making process looking at the flow plan and deciding what can be done with the house. Yeah, I'd say even when we were looking at rentals, I, I 
I would say half the properties or even more than half the properties didn't have floor plans, which I found really interesting because as a, mm. just like anyone else, a renter, you want to know that the, the, the house fits your, fits your needs. So again, property managers yes. out there add the floor plans. It doesn't take much. It's a, it's a small cost, but it makes life easier for people. Definitely. Okay. That's my rent. Definitely. Another important thing, Cheryl, to add to this is I know you're big on rooming houses and you're big on co-living spaces. Yes. How important is floor plan when it comes to converting normal four-bedroom to bathroom houses into a co-living space or a rooming house? Yeah, absolutely. So you look at that and we're talking about uh, conversions would be that you look at what are the, the wasted rooms, the, the extra rumpers at formal living, dining, huge you know particularly huge living areas that can be then split up into smaller smaller rooms i mean my preference my preference is that we 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 purpose build um because that means we can put little en suites into each of the properties um but let's say for guys like matt and sahara who are the rooming house pros in melbourne they've been they've done you know over a hundred rooming houses and they're big things on conversions they look at these houses where they look at a floor plan and be able to carve up, carve up areas. So, yeah, be mindful that the older houses are much harder to to change a floor plan because you've got you know brick walls, whereas mm. the houses probably built in the last twenty years, you've got your mm. your timber plasterboard walls, which are easy to easy to take down, or you can or, or put up up walls in in houses that's not that's not as hard plumbing is a is another thing that you've got to be aware of obviously yes yes and so plumbing of course the age of the house tells a lot about the plumbing and the electrical side of things right and so you know especially when you're talking about the floor plans and how old the house is uh, of course the older the house gets you know if, if if it's in original condition it's not renovated at all uh, you need to be wary that okay, the plumbing might give away, and so have they upgraded their plumbing? Yeah. Have they upgraded their water system? Have they upgraded their heating system, their air cons, etc.? Especially yeah. when you're talking about 1960s, 1970s, 1980s houses as an investment property, you need to think of some of these things as well when you're doing your property due diligence. Yeah. Anything else, Cheryl, that you want to add? Uh, you say- want to cl- before we close off. Before we close off, I mean, you, you touched on things, you know, the age of the age of the house. What are the inclusions? What are the features of the property? You know, the tenants, tenants are as much as there's a, a, a tight rental market at the moment. There are certain things that that provide a level of comfort and livability for tenants. You want to be able to to attract higher quality tenants. So, you know, think about things like. If the property doesn't have air conditioning and you live in a really hot place, I'm just thinking Queensland, right? Like most tenants will want some level of air conditioning in a property or fans or something like that. So I'd say really, really understand your market. If you're buying, mm-hmm. if you're buying to invest, understand who it is that you're catering for, understand what their needs are and their wants and because you want the longer that people are living in your property and the less turnover, it's going to be better. It's going to be better for you, um, and then you've got less maintenance Definitely. costs. Yeah, those those are sort Definitely. of my my parting parting words. What are the last things you've got to touch on? Look, I think keeping a tenant in the mind is very very important. One thing that I always counsel people to do is, especially when you're buying an an investment grade property in established area, which is established property and and an old property. Assume some sort of repairs and maintenance that you would have to put up with uh, yeah. on an ongoing basis because this is not a brand new schmick looking property, right? So, you know, allow for some of that repairs and maintenance to happen in the first go, but also more importantly, allow for that extra spend that you're going to do upfront when you're going to acquire that property, right? And so you want to ensure that you are handing over or putting a new tenant in the property in such a way that you are you know, providing for a good house, a clean mm. house, mm. all the issues fixed up up front so that it's not an ongoing process, right? 
And so a lot of people, what they try to do is they try to be really, really stingy. They buy an amazing property, but they really be really stingy. They wouldn't spend that $1,500 that the property might require to attract a tenant. And then, you know, they consistently, as the tenant breaks and, you know, VRNT comes in, it becomes a lot more worse. And then, so the next expense is 5000 or 10000 And mm. so they could have avoided that completely by spending that $1,000 up front, right? And so be mindful of, you know, you know, the, the rent is amazing. And also don't be scared of investing money up front in the property because you're going to improve the value anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that, that's a pretty comprehensive list there, Moss. I mean, for a lot of people to, to be able to go through, I know you've got a bit of um, an ebook and a checklist that you'll be able to share with, with people that can go through those that really want to physically tick off stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. If yes. there's anything that we've missed, yes. please, let us, please let us know. Yes, definitely. I think we've covered to uh, quite a detailed level as to the suburb selection and the property selection and the price points. Um, but we do have a checklist that goes together with this. And so we are opening those to people. Reach out to us um, if you are looking for a checklist and we should be able to send that to you. This checklist would be uh, in our comments, um, drop any comments, you know, if you have anything else that you would want to add to and or what are other things that you would look at, you know, when you're doing the due diligences, uh, is there anything that we have skipped? Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Moss. Thank you very much, Cheryl. And thank you for the listeners and enjoy your day. Keep smiling, keep investing and a very happy new year that we forgot to say at the start of the at the start we of did. the episode have an amazing and prosperous and abundant joyful healthy 2023 everyone i'm excited to be awesome. thank you doing a lot more of these sessions with you moss and sharing any of our experience and knowledge with the audience amazing session cheryl thank you very much awesome take care bye bye <laughs>